You have to love it when Mr. Rogers gets a standing ovation in Hollywood. There's just something really special about that. Um, so what if I ask you to close your eyes for 10 seconds and do the Mr. Rogers exercise and think of those who have loved you and helped you become who you are? Who would you think of? Would you think of uh, parents, a lot of you probably, maybe grandparents, um, maybe a teacher or a coach or some kind of mentor? But what I wonder most this morning, um, would you think of anyone here? Would you think of anyone in this room? I, I really hope you would. I truly do, and, and so does the writer of the book of Hebrews. Listen to how he starts our passage for today. He says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse one, he simply says, let brotherly love continue. Okay. Let brotherly love continue, that, that we would love one another in this transformative way, and we would persevere in it, so that we would find ourselves in each other's 10-second reels. He's not the only one who holds out this hope that we would truly love one another. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. The Apostle John in 1 John 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Jesus, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And so it seems this morning that Mr. Rogers and the writer of Hebrews, and the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle John, and Jesus have given us something very, very important for us to think about and kind of self-reflect on. Let me put it to you this way. Would I be in anyone's, in this room's thoughts during those 10 seconds? Would I be in anyone in this room's thoughts in those 10 seconds. Um, so today our, our teaching is immensely practical and very personal. So let's pray that we would be receptive to that. Would you bow with me please? Father have mercy on us. Help us not just to hear your words but with gladness to do them. Help us with that spirit of God for Christ's sake we pray, amen. So the writer of Hebrews has been declaring over and over and over again a central truth. Jesus is Jesus is greater. If you have trouble with it, it's on the back wall there. Great big banner with all of your declarations and confessions of that truth written on it. I encourage you, it'll be up the next couple weeks. Make your way by there and just read some of the, some of the confessions of that truth that Jesus is greater, that are written on that, on that banner back there. But in light of that truth, he says, he's calling this little suffering church that he's writing to, and he says, persevere in trusting and worshiping Jesus and no other. 
at the end of just a couple verses before where we are today, at the back end of chapter 12, he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Be grateful and offer, offer acceptable worship. What does that look like? What shape should our gratitude and worship take? Okay. And, and this is what he's gonna help us with in our passage today. This is what he is talking about when he says in that verse, in Hebrews 13, verse one, let brotherly love continue. Okay. Acceptable worship and fitting gratitude towards Jesus take this shape, that we would love one another like brothers, like, like family. Um, one of my favorite examples of this kind of brotherly love comes from uh, this movie. It's called The Straight Story. And it's a story of the reconciliation of two brothers, Alvin and Henry Straight. It's a true story. It's actually happened. Um, Alvin and Henry, uh, Alvin was 73. Alvin's the one um, on the lawnmower there. And Henry is his brother with uh, standing up with a dog. And uh, uh, they had been um, not speaking for more than a decade. And Alvin found out that Henry had suffered a stroke and he determined to go see his brother and be reconciled. Now the problem was um, Alvin was legally blind and could not drive. He didn't have a driver's license. He was also legally stubborn and wouldn't let anyone else drive him. So he determined that he would drive 261 miles across two states on that lawnmower to visit his brother and be reconciled. And so at the top speed of five miles an hour, including his breakdowns and waiting time, that 261 mile trip pulling a trailer full of gasoline, clothes, and food and camping equipment took Alvin six weeks to complete. But that's brotherly love, I think. That's, that's, that's like family. And the writer of Hebrews says, we are to continually, we are to persevere in loving each other that way. Um, persevere in it. Because it can really be hard, right? If you have a brother, you know it can be hard to love your brother, right? I have one brother, he's 11 years older than me. So I, I remember as a child, I had this, I had this pattern of, uh, at the dinner table. Um, my, my food would sit in isolated things on the plate. Like, you know, you'd have your beans here and your meat there and your potatoes there, whatever it was. And uh, they usually didn't touch each other and I didn't eat them. I ate them sequentially. I would eat all of one and then all of the other and all of the next. And for reason unbeknownst to me, this drove my brother batty. And so one day, I'm probably eight or nine years old, uh, my brother, who's 11 years older than me, reaches over and takes my plate and just stirs it all up and just gives it back to me. Um, you know, he says persevere in brotherly love because loving brothers can be hard. Um, you know, I rarely see my brother. Uh, he, my brother Dale lives up in the Midwest near Peoria, Illinois, and uh, rarely see him these days. But if I got word that he needed me, I would be on a plane, not on a lawnmower, but on a plane, <laughs> to Peoria, Illinois, as soon as I possibly could. Um, because we're brothers, right? 
That's, that's what brothers do. We love each other. Um, and so the writer of Hebrews says, if you want to love Jesus back, if you want to show him gratitude, if you want to worship him appropriately, then love his people. And if I can get uncomfortably practical, he is saying love his people that are in this room to you. Um, even when it's hard, even when they mess with your food. First John 4 says, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love God, love his people. Okay. Especially when it's hard. Love like brothers. He says, love like family. This, as Francis Schaeffer put it, is the mark of a Christian. Okay. How we love each other. And what follows next, we're only going to look at four short verses today because they are so impactful for us. Um, but what follows next are particular ways that this love is to play out in the lives of this little suffering church and that it's supposed to play out in the lives of this church, in our lives. Okay. They are ways that are not easy. In fact, you'll find that they, they cost you to love the, in these ways. But they are ways that God is pleased for us to find our way into someone's 10-second reel. Okay. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So he says, this is how we are to love. Show hospitality. Remember prisoners and those who are mistreated. Um, if I could put them all into a category, I would say that Hebrews has a special concern that we love well those who are suffering or who are in need. Okay. And this, this makes sense because the people he was writing to were suffering for their faith. You remember as we've gone along, we've seen this. Some of them had been imprisoned. Some of them had had their property confiscated and that suffering that they were experiencing coupled with a blurry vision of the supremacy of Jesus over all others had them on the edge of denying Christ and turning back to their old life. So um, suffering of any kind, you know, it has a tendency to turn us in and focus on me and mine. And uh, so he prescribes an antidote that we love as brothers those who are in a hard place even when we are suffering. And he gives these three particulars. First, show hospitality to strangers. The word is interesting. It actually means um, love for strangers. Love for strangers. Love for outsiders. It can mean both inside the church and outside. Today our focus is on inside and loving believers. But throughout the New Testament, we're commanded to be a hospitable people. Uh, it happens over and over. Romans 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling about it. 1 Timothy 3.2 gives the qualifications of an overseer or an elder, a leader in the church, and says an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. 
It's a pretty important thing. You cannot even serve the church as a leader if you're not hospitable, if you're not practicing hospitality. And so let me give you a simple working definition I ran across. It's the willingness, hospitality is the willingness to welcome people into your home or apartment um, who don't ordinarily belong there. Um, Of course, it can be extended outside of your physical home. You could say it's the willingness to welcome people into your life who don't ordinarily belong there. And again, while hospitality is one of the most powerful ways to share the love of Christ outside the church, the writer of Hebrews wants us to think about it within the body of Christ today. And so let me just give you some really practical suggestions since this is a command that we are all to honor. First of all, be hospitable here, okay? In this room, at this place. Welcome guests. Sit with people you don't know. If you see someone sitting alone, go sit with them. Introduce yourself. I mean, they're in your living room, okay? Imagine if someone came into your living room at home and you didn't introduce yourself or welcome them. That would be rude, okay? These people have come here. They're our guests. They're your guests. This is your church gathered here, okay? Show them around. Help them find their classes. There are seven buildings on this campus arranged in the shape of a maze, It's impossible. Some of you have been here for decades. You can't find your children in their classes, okay? Invite them home for lunch after service. Some of you, this ought to be your mission. You are what I call hospitality monsters, right? You should fix a big old meal on Saturday and then make your objective to find someone to bring home to eat it after church on Sunday. Perhaps someone you've never met before who's never been here before. I encourage you to be hospitable at holidays, especially to those who are away from their family. I'm especially concerned that our singles would be in our homes when they are away from their families at times like that. Welcome missionaries into your home. We have like 40 missionary families from this church. They're regularly coming back to touch base, get retooled, get refueled, get refreshed. And they need a place to stay. If you have a spare room and they love to eat food, missionaries eat food, and they would love to do it in your home. Open your life in your home. Share a meal with somebody from the church. Invite someone over. Who knows, according to verse two, you might be entertaining an angel. What? Okay, what is that? Now he may have in mind, this writer to the letter of the Hebrews, he may have in mind some stuff that happened in the Old Testament where Abraham, for instance, in the book of Genesis, encounters some angels and he doesn't know they're angels. But it's not just some isolated Old Testament practice that happened to the patriarchs and the great saints. He says it's so common that it could happen to you. That when you welcome a stranger and love them in the name of Christ, you could be entertaining an angel. See, an angel is a messenger from God that comes 
for your good to bring a message to you. Perhaps sometimes in the Old Testament they came to deliver you. Who would want to miss that, right? You might already have experienced that and didn't even know it. Some of you may be thinking, this could be dangerous, inviting strangers into my home. Um, it's interesting, though. The people that he's asking to do this in the book of Hebrews, had all, some of them had already had their property confiscated because they were followers of Jesus. And if anybody had a reason to be wary of strangers, it was these people. And he says, do it anyway. Love them. L- love them in the name of Christ. Open your home to them. Welcome them at your table. You know, one of my favorite uh, hospitality stories is told by a guy, his name is uh, Daniel Meyer, and he tells of an elderly widow lived in a small apartment, and she heard a sermon like this where she was encouraged to exercise her gifts, and people always told her that she was really good at hospitality. So she decided um, to pray about it and think about it, and she lived near a major university And so what she decided to do was take a three-by-five card and write this on each one of the following of the cards. She would write on the cards, are you homesick? Come to my house at 4 p.m. for tea. And she put a phone number, an address, and then she plastered them all over that university campus. And uh, students began to trickle in. And the fascinating thing, a, a decade later when she went to be with the Lord, She had 80 honorary pallbearers. 80 honorary pallbearers at her funeral who had all, at one time or another, been invited into her home, found a cup of hot tea, a sense of home, and the gospel of Jesus in a hospitable heart in this faithful faithful servant's life. Students in local universities, there are some of them here right in our town who are horribly homesick, Um, especially international students. Um, Can you imagine what it would be like to be away from your family, away from your culture, in another language, in another place, over a holiday, what that's like? And did you know that 75% of international students in the United States will never, um, will never enter an American home, 75% of them, 80% of them will never visit an American church while they're in the United States. Add to that immigrants, refugees, um, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. You might entertain an angel unawares. This is one of the ways we are to love one another in the body of Christ. Um, He goes on, he says, show hospitality, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Remember those who are in prison. And he's already alluded to this back in chapter 10. Uh, Jake taught it to us earlier, I believe. Verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So this is something they were already doing, right? They were already showing compassion for those who were imprisoned for their faith. And now he says, persevere in that. 
persevere in brotherly love for those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Clearly, he wants them to love them deeply, to feel their sorrow and suffering as though it were their own. And I want to give, I just want to give you all kudos. You did this beautifully last year. One of our own, uh, Jen, was imprisoned in Africa. She was there speaking of Christ and working and living, um, sent out by Northwake. And through a variety of tragic circumstances, she was imprisoned there. And you loved her and you prayed for her and you asked how you could, how you could reach out to her. You asked if anyone was going to see her. You loved her beautifully. It was as though you were there with her. And I just think our church, when I think of this verse and I think of what you did for Jen, it's a perfect match. But there's a need for this here. You know, our country has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Russia is a distant second. Um, at one point in time, the number of inmates in America was larger than the populations of Atlanta, Boston, Kansas City, and Seattle combined. The majority of inmates are parents with minor children. That means that 27 million children have a parent behind bars. And this is so, so sobering. One in nine African-American children has a parent who is incarcerated. One in nine. Have you ever visited anyone in prison? Have you ever uh, corresponded with anyone in prison? There are ways and agencies that help you do that. There's a guy named Clive Jacobson in Australia. He, um, he did a little stint in prison and was mindful how lonely and isolated it was. So now he began corresponding with inmates. Now he corresponds with 550 inmates around the world. 550 Remember those who are in, are in prison. And at the front of his mind seems to be those, especially those who suffer for being Christians, not exclusively, but at the forefront. And tragically, in our modern world, there are lots of opportunities to care for Christians, um, express our care for Christians who are in prison for their faith. And we are tragically failing at it. There was a congressman named Frank Wolf. Maybe you heard of him. He's no longer a congressman, but... Um, he was from Virginia, and his, one of his emphasis was international human rights. He was a committed Christian. And he says, I meet many people from around the world who are baffled and concerned that the West doesn't seem to be that interested in their plight. He says, three nuns from Iraq just came to my office. They said they feel abandoned. Half the Christian community in Iraq, this is about a decade ago when he wrote this, but he says, half the Christian community in Iraq is now living in ghettos in Damascus, Lebanon, and Jordan. He says, I was in Egypt last month. The United States has given the Egyptian government over 50 billion since the late 70s, yet Coptic Christians have been persecuted during that time. If you're a Coptic Christian in Egypt, you can't get a government job, you can't be in the military, and they wonder why the church in the West hasn't spoken out on their behalf. In China, he says, we've got 30, about 30 Catholic bishops who've been arrested. You have hundreds of Protestant pastors and house leaders who are being imprisoned and persecuted. Sudan is suffering persecution. Many Christians have died. Um, he says, I had one woman tell me the West seems more interested in saving the whales than in us. Um, so hey, pick a country where Christians are being persecuted and imprisoned for their faith and pray for them. 
Here's the top 10 list from Open Doors of most persecuted countries in the world as of 2017. North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and Eritrea. Pick one. If you don't like those, there's a list of about 50 on their website where Christians are persecuted and often imprisoned for their faith, simply for following Jesus. Um, you know, North Korea is in the news every day now as, as uh, conversations and tweets pick up between our nation. Um, missile tests are increasing. Um, did you know that there are conservatively 200,000 Christians secretly worshiping in North Korea? And that there are conservatively 30,000 Christians in prison in North Korea, the worst prisons in the world probably, because of their faith. 30,000 of our brothers and sisters suffer there. So when you see the next news story, it's every day about North Korea, would you commit to just pray for them, for our brothers and sisters who suffer there? He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Those who are mistreated. It's, it's a broader category than imprisonment. It could include just ridicule and humiliation as well as physical suffering or deprivation. Um, but this kind of thing can and does happen here in our country. Um, it happens, interestingly, it happens in our schools sometimes. Um, there was a study by a, a, a group of uh, Jewish scholars and they did research on um, our faculty at American universities. And what they found was that the majority of our faculty at our universities have positive feelings towards Jews, Buddhists, Catholics, and atheists, but they feel most unfavorable about evangelical Christians. We lead Mormons as the least likely religious group by 20%. Um, my, my daughter uh, came back from college uh, not that long ago and uh, told me a story of how she had been called out in class um, by her professor. He asked where, where she was in this class, called her out, and then mocked her for her faith in front of his entire class, singled her out and mocked her faith. That was his intent on calling on her. No other reason. And she was not in Chapel Hill or Asheville. Okay? She was in one of our other good schools in the state. Let me talk to students just for a minute. You guys who are, especially you, you're in college or you're at the university or even in high school or even middle school these days. Um, sometimes Christians are mocked for their faith at your schools. Um, don't choose cool over Christ, okay? Don't choose safe over Christ. Stand with your brothers and sisters. Don't remain silent. Don't keep a safe distance. And for God's sake, don't join in on the mockery. Speak up on their behalf. Comfort them, come to their defense, pray for them, pray with them. 
since you are also in the body. Another translation of that is, is this, as if you yourselves were suffering, that same kind of concern. We are one with them. We are to love them as brothers even when it is hard. And so he, he encourages us to, to remember those who are in prison and are mistreated, to exercise hospitality. And then he's got one more thing he wants us to think about in terms of where our love is to play out extraordinarily in, as worship to God. And that is in our marriages. In verse four, he says, and this is the last verse we'll look at today. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Marriage should be honored by us all. That is, it should be treated as precious, as a treasure. It should be valued. And he makes me think about this in two ways. To honor marriage and to protect it. To invest in marriage and to protect marriage. Um, how do we invest in our marriages? How do we honor and protect them for those who are are married. On the, on the honor side and the invest side of that, there's a guy named John Gottman who does a bunch of research on marriage. And his contention is about the, mo the most destructive thing you can do for your marriage is to practice contempt for your spouse. Okay. He says about the best thing you can do is to practice kindness. And he has an interesting little way of expressing that and, and discerning it in marriage. He breaks them into two groups, the masters and the disasters. And all you have to do to be a master, this is how troubled marriage is in our land, all you have to do to be a master is be happily married for six years and then you're a master. Um, but what he says is that it's how you respond to your spouse's bid. He calls them bids. They are um, little requests for connection that your spouse makes throughout the day. This is everyday stuff. So he gives this example. He says, um, for example, a husband who is a bird enthusiast, not a bad thing to be in my mind, a husband who is a bird enthusiast might notice a goldfinch fly across the yard. He tells his wife, look at that beautiful bird. He's not just commenting on the bird. He's requesting a response from his wife, a sign of interest or support, hoping they'll connect, however momentarily, over the bird. It says, um, the wife now has a choice. She can respond by either turning toward or turning away from her husband. Though the bird bid might seem minor, it can actually reveal a lot about the health of the marriage. The bird was important for the husband and the question is whether his wife recognizes and respects that. So people who turned toward their partners in the study responded by engaging the bidder, showing interest and supporting in the bid. Those who turned away responded minimally, ignored the bid or expressed contempt, as in, that's stupid, or stop bothering me. These bidding interactions had profound effects on marital well-being. Couples who had divorced after a six-year follow-up, the disasters, had turned toward bids of only 33%. The couples who were still together after six years, the, the masters, had turned toward bids of 87%. Are you investing 
in the little conversations of every day in your marriage? Do you turn towards or turn away? Do you receive the bids or do you reject them? Are you showing kindness or contempt? Are you holding your marriage as a treasure in a place of honor? So he says invest, honor, and he says protect. The marriage bed must be kept pure, undefiled, for God will judge the adulterer of all the sexually immoral. The marriage bed must be kept pure, undefiled. Of course, Jesus tells us it's more than the bed that must be kept pure, right? It's our hearts. So C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Great Divorce. And he has this curious, it's a curious thing, a busload of people who travel to heaven on their way to take up residence in hell. It's very imaginative. He says, these people appear thin and almost ghost-like in the robust atmosphere of heaven. Most of them immediately flee back to the comfort of their bus, but one ghost is plagued by a talkative red lizard representing the power of sin and lust that sits on his shoulder. That, that one ghost, that one person, ventures out into the plains of heaven and encounters an angel. And Lewis describes their meeting. He says, it's a parable of God's invitation to break the power of sin in our life and transform it into something for his glory. And it fits the protection of our marriage beautifully. This is how it went. A mighty angel approached the man and asked, would you like me to make the lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the man. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, wait, look out. You're burning me. Keep away, said the man, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? Look, look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. And suddenly the lizard began chattering loudly. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. And the angel said to the man, have I your permission? Men and women, husbands and wives, my brothers and sisters, will you protect your marriage bed. Will you, will you kill it, that which is seeking to rob you of that? If you will not, the writer of Hebrews simply says, soberingly says, God will judge your adultery and sexual immorality. God will judge your adultery and sexual immorality. And scholar George Guthrie writes a so much better ending. He says a healthy sexual relationship within marriage gives a platform for truth's proclamation to the world and a joyful dance of worship before God. In marriage's pleasure and fidelity, 
We shout against the inevitability of marital breakup and adultery proclaimed by the godless. Our healthy marriage trumpet the redemption of people from self-centeredness and destructive immoral life patterns. He says the bed becomes a mini church. I'm sure you've never quite thought of it that way. He says the bed becomes a mini church in which the two covenant members sacrificially and ecstatically meet one another's needs, offer their bodies as living sacrifices in worship before God. He says, we should remind the world that God created the wonder and fireworks of sex long before the advent of the glossy, counterfeit sex sellers of modern culture. Invest in your marriage. Protect your marriage. This is how we show our gratitude. This is how we worship God in a way that pleases him. We persist in loving one another like family, even when it's hard. So, let me ask you to close your eyes for 10 seconds. And I would like you to ask God whom and how you ought to love with this family kind of love that we are called to love with. Perhaps it's someone in this room or perhaps it's moving into a place where you can love someone in this room that way. Or perhaps it's someone far away, even in North Korea. I'll watch the time, okay? You may begin. Father, have mercy on us. We are not naturally good lovers. We're not good givers. We're better at taking. And we'd rather hide than love even the people in this room who are part of our church family, our brothers, our sisters. Help us, Lord. Give us faith and trust in your care for us so that we might be hospitable. People who remember those who suffer in prison. And oh Lord, may we invest with gladness and without reservation in our marriages and protect them from the sirens that would cause them to be stolen away from us. So Lord, have mercy on us. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to walk out of this room and obey that which we are saying to us now by your spirit, through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we're dismissed today, uh, <laughs> you guys can just, you can have a seat. <laughs> but it was, it was awesome the way that you marched all together. <laughs> they weren't sure, we weren't sure if we were going to have time for a closing song or not.